A young man phoned me uh, one day at the office and asked if I would be willing to meet with him for lunch. From everything that I knew, he was a godly man, an active servant of Christ, a faithful witness, a man of passion for God's truth, a leader in his local church. And so we sat down at the table, and I braced for the worst. Something was clearly wrong, something big. As I recall, he did not address the problem immediately. It took him a little while to get around to it, and I think in retrospect that he was afraid that he would hurt me. But finally, he explained in straightforward terms what his problem was. He was entertaining serious doubts about the reality of Christianity. I'll have to say in one sense I was a bit relieved. I was ready for some great scandalous problem. But then the more that I talked to him, it became clear that this was a problem, a big problem. How can we know that the Bible is true? How do we know that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead and that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him? Could there not be another way to God. Have you ever been there, Christian? Have those thoughts passed through your mind? Has the doubt haunted you as with the fear that maybe it's all just a game? Maybe the Bible was not really inspired by God and is no more valid than any other sacred book of any other world religion. Maybe Jesus was just a man who died like any other man. Maybe just maybe there is no God. Well, I assured my friend over lunch that I had spent my own time in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. For me, the crisis came in the fall of 1984. I'd just completed four amazing and I think wonderful years at a Bible college. In the last three years of which my faith had grown deep, I had spent that summer preaching at maybe, maybe 50 times throughout the Midwest. And I came in that fall of 1984 to be a graduate student at a secular university studying ancient history. My faith was rock solid. But I entered into those classes which all started in ancient history on the evolutionary model of religions. Stride to present to the, each class the idea that religions just evolve and they're all really the same and doing the same thing and Jesus is not unique. In fact, Jesus was directly attacked in pretty much every class. I started looking for the memo and wondered why every class needed to start with Jesus in this secular university. But I remember those days going into that with such solid faith and walking on those beautiful fall days back from class with my head spinning, and I entered into a season of deep doubt. I wanted the truth, not a myth. And my teachers labored to persuade me that my faith rested on nothing but myth. And my faith wavered. I had some things to figure out. It was a time of deep doubt. 
We journey back in time this morning, 2,000 years, to a desolate, windswept ridge east of the Dead Sea. Mounted on this God-forsaken high ridge is the rock-solid desert fortress of Machaerus, operated by the henchmen of Herod Antipas. In one of the dungeons below the walls of this fortress is a prisoner by the name of John the Baptist. For some time, people had streamed to the Jordan River to hear John preach. He preached on repentance and the pending judgment of God, and many submitted to his message and were baptized. He had enjoyed a fruitful ministry, confronting people's sin and pointing them to Jesus as Messiah. And it seemed at times that Israel would turn to God and that there would be a great work as the kingdom was brought in by the Messiah. But when John dared to confront Herod Antipas concerning his adulterous affair with Herodias, the wife of his half-brother Philip, Herod had John imprisoned at the fortress of Machaerus. So here's John, yanked away from his active, fruitful preaching and baptizing ministry, and suddenly with an awful lot of time on his hands. Perhaps echoing in his thoughts were those words from his probably sermons, plural, in which he said, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But the prophesied fire never came. John knew the Old Testament Scriptures very well. He knew that Messiah would rule his kingdom with a rod of iron, that his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet, that sinners would be judged and righteousness would prevail. But shackled in a remote prison, it was clear to John that Jesus was judging no one. And in the blisteringly hot confines of Machaerus, John began to grow impatient and even to doubt. Reports of Jesus' miracles continued to reach John, but there was no judgment. There was no establishment of the kingdom of righteousness. If Jesus is really Messiah, why would he not set the prisoners free and crush the forces of evil? What is he waiting for? Well, Jesus addresses John's doubts beginning at verse 18 of Luke chapter 7. As John questions him, first of all, and beginning at verse 18, Luke 7 verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things, that is, the things that Jesus had been doing. You can just go to verse 11 of this chapter to see some of what he had done. And here, in a miraculous way, raising a young man from the dead, and so John calls two of them, two of his disciples, verse 19, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect 
someone else. I can imagine a knife went right through Jesus' heart about that point. This is John the Baptist. Wondering if he is the one to come. Remember the, the line from John's preaching? Remember what he said, chapter 3, verse 16, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. John 16, 14, or 6, 14, in that context, Jesus has fed 5,000. And it says this, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. At the funeral of her brother Martha, her brother Lazarus, Martha said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Who was to come and is here, is obviously referring to the Old Testament prophecies. You are the one who was to come. Remember what the worshipers will cry out as Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They will quote Psalm 118.26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because of such references, and we could add others to them, I think against some very fine commentators that John is doubting whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. John is clearly doubting this. I think the main reason so many scholars stumble over this is things such as what he says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How could that man be doubting that Jesus is Messiah? But this phrase, the coming one, is tied too heavily to Old Testament texts and is pronounced too often in the life of Jesus to not be understood to be that this is a doubt. This is doubt about whether or not he is Messiah. This is John the Baptist. This is the one prophesied and designed and sent by God to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. And for a moment in time, he's not sure that this is the right man. Perhaps William Barclay has it right when he suggests that John's cruel captivity had put tremors in his heart. The answer to John's question is not immediately forthcoming, at least not in Luke's account. For we find there in verse 21 that Jesus, first of all, heals many. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So Jesus answers John's question beginning at verse 22 when he says, replying to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus answers John's, John's question here, drawing from Old Testament passages. We don't have the time here to go to each of these passages, but he's just drawing, it would appear primarily from the prophet Isaiah, who prophesies that the Messiah will do these very things. We see that Jesus' ministry, however, only hits on one of the two prophesied cylinders here. Not only will Messiah heal and raise the dead, but Messiah will also come in judgment to settle the score and to be assured that righteousness will reign 
All Jesus does is point him back to the texts that apply. He calls him to look at the biblical text of the prophecies to know that he is in fact the coming one. As J.I. Packer puts it, the mighty acts of God are not revelation to man at all, except insofar as they are accompanied by words of God to explain them. Here is the experience, the healings. Now take them and compare them with the written word of God in the prophets. Tell John what you see. And blessed is that one who does not stumble over me, Jesus says again, quoting probably from Isaiah chapter 8. Blessed is that one who can look at what Jesus does and can see it for what it really is. John apparently wanted to see more political action. He apparently wanted to see more holy vengeance and righteous judgment against the enemies of God. Blessed, says Jesus in gentle rebuke, is that one who can see the kingdom of God working through me, even if the whole package isn't here right now. Listen, John, I, must, I, am, I am Messiah. Don't fear. Test the reports of faithful witnesses against the Scriptures. Did you hear that? Test the witnesses, the, the reports of faithful witnesses against the Scriptures. And trust so Jesus sends John's disciples back with both empirical and biblical evidence, but with no explanation as to why judgment had not yet fallen. Now this is, frankly, a, a public rebuke. And it does not leave John looking very good. But it is at this point that Jesus does something amazing. It's loving. It's charactered. Rather than criticize John for his doubts, we find that Jesus defends John's character, beginning at verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? I think the idea there is, did you go out to see this vacillating prophet this fickle man of spineless faith, you know very well you did not go out to see a wavering reed in the wind. You went out to see a rock. I think in part Jesus is saying, don't be fooled by John's doubts. He's a man of deep faith. He's a man of God. Verse 25, if not, and certainly not, we could put it that way, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Everyone would scoff at such a question. No, obviously not. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. You remember what John wore, and you remember what John ate. You didn't go out there to find some posh evangelist that's trying to get money out of you and living easy. So, verse 26, what did you go out to see? You went out there to the Jordan to see a prophet. Yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. This is a quotation of Malachi 3 and verse 1, the last book of Old Testament prophecy in the canon, and coming before those 400 years 
when there is no revelation preparing for Jesus Christ, sort of a dramatic pause between the Testaments and Malachi prophesying that there will be this forerunner of the Messiah, this man who will come and will prepare the way of the king. Go back, if you will, to Luke chapter 3, just for a moment in verse 4. Luke chapter 3 and verse 4. Here, when it comes to the birth of John the Baptist, we find that it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. In other words, the text of Scripture is saying that John the Baptist fulfills this prophecy written hundreds of years before. Verse 4, A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for Him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. This John the Baptist is that man. He's that forerunner who goes before the king and fixes all the ruts in the road and levels out the bad places and prepares the way, saying to the people, Here comes the the king that's who John is says Jesus that's who you went out to the Jordan to see Jesus concludes then in verse 28 I tell you among those born of women there is no one greater than John those when we read that phrase Jesus was filled with grace and truth this is grace here is a man doubting his job before God. He is selected through prophecy as the forerunner of the Messiah, and John is saying, I'm not sure. And Jesus says, there is no one born who's greater than this man. What grace and truth. He's not just shooting in the dark and just saying this to make John feel good and to try to cover for his relative and forerunner. It's the truth. We don't talk, do we, about John the Doubting Baptist. For some reason, Thomas always gets that one. I have no idea why. Doubt any more than anybody else doubted, but we always talk about doubting Thomas. But who talks about doubting John the Baptist? It's a profound assessment of the importance of John. Now, we need to understand, and here I want you to put on your theological caps for a little bit and to think about this. How is it that John is greater than anyone who's ever been born at this time? As profound an assessment as this is of John, it makes the second half of the verse even more astonishing. Verse 28 for it concludes, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What's going on here? Why is John the Baptist greater than Abraham? Why is John the Baptist greater than Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Daniel? How is John the Baptist greater than these men, these great prophets and workers of miracles? He is greater than these men, not necessarily in character and godliness, though he was certainly on a par with them. He is greater than these men in time. He was the last prophet to clear the way for Messiah. It is in this sense that those in the kingdom of God are greater than John. Greater, not in character or in godliness, but greater in their place on the timeline of salvation history. What we are to understand here is the development of Revelation to pointing to Jesus Christ. I think I can illustrate this fairly well. 
you've seen some pictures of the Wilbur brothers, right? Um, as they began in those early days of flight, Orville and Wilbur Wright. I said Wilbur brothers, it didn't sound right. The Wright brothers, you know who I mean, the, the guys who flew the planes. You, you've seen some of those grainy pictures and sketches that are drawn. They're, they're in these, contra- these rickety contraptions that are barely off the ground in this open cockpit, and usually there's some type of crash landing at the other end. But you go back in time and you look at aviation history, there is no one greater than the Wright brothers. They got us up in the air. I mean, they were cool when it comes to aviation history, right? A couple, few days ago, I forget where I was at, I was flying to Chicago, and in front of me is this girl, I would say a year and a half old, and there she is in perfect 72-degree temperature, no wind chill, cushy sh- seat, playing with her little doll, man next to her talking to her about Winnie the Pooh. She's chowing down on pretzels and juice and having the time of her life flying in this airplane at speeds the Wright brothers could only pretend to ever imagine. And within one hour, she is lifted in absolute comfort from Minneapolis to Chicago. In aviation history, she is greater than the Wright brothers. You see the point? Using that to illustrate this greater truth, those of us who are on this side of the cross are greater than John the Baptist. Not greater people, not more charactered people, not more godly, But we live on this side of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. No one to that point, you go to all of the previous prophets, no one was greater than John because he came right before Jesus and pointed the way to Christ. He had that privileged distinction of standing there with people listening and pointing to Jesus and saying, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No one could make such a statement. He was the greatest there was. But in salvation history, the the simplest believer in Jesus Christ is greater than John. Because we know Christ crucified and risen, and we have, through God's grace, the indwelling of the Spirit of God, and can enter into a relationship with God that John the Baptist did not understand. That's not saying that he was not then part of the kingdom of God and certainly is part of the kingdom of God depending on how it's defined today in heaven. But this is what Jesus means. There's no greater one than John, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because he's closer to the Son. You, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have come to living, vital faith in Christ, are in a privileged position, a position greater than John the Baptist. It's an amazing thought. Well, and that leads us very naturally to the next segment of this narrative, and that is the response to Jesus and John. We hear of this privileged position of this one prophesied through all of these centuries, 
And it brings us to consider our relationship to him. And that is what Jesus points us to here. Or in fact, at verse 29, Luke probably, I will take and I believe it is right, the parenthetical idea here in the NIV verses 29 through 30 are put in parentheses and are then pictured as the words of Luke. I think that is probably right. And we notice here now a statement that's going to set us up for what Jesus teaches right at the end of the section. Verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. Two responses here, the first positive in verse 29. They acknowledged God's way was right. That's an interpretive phrase of the original, but it gets it right. Because they had been baptized by John is also an interpretive of the Greek phrase, but the idea is probably more likely that they acknowledge God's way by being baptized by John. At any rate, the simple point is that some people responded to John's preaching, even some you would least expect, like the tax collectors. This has always been the way of God, and it's always been the way of Jesus. He, he presents his truth, and he presents his salvation to those who are willing to receive it. It makes no difference what you've done or where you've been or how godless you have been. Jesus opens the door of salvation wide to all who will humble themselves and walk through the narrow gate. But there's the negative response. The tax collectors receive the baptism of John, acknowledging God's way is right. But verse 30, the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John, or again, because they, they showed their rejection by not being baptized. And literally, it reads here, God's decree or God's will. They rejected God's will. They rejected God's purpose. God's purpose was for them to heed John's words and to respond. Leon Morris says they were concerned with the law of God, but not with the will of God. That is an amazing turn of phrase. The law of God is the will of God. But we know, pharisaically, that is possible. They were concerned with the law of God, but not with the will of God. Where simpler people had heard and responded to God's call to repent, these men in their complacency and smug self-satisfaction found nothing to repent of. They rejected God's way. They refused John's baptism. That's the point. Hughes quotes Puritan theologian John Owen, who captured the essence by observing, He that hath slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. He that had slight thoughts of sin, if your thoughts of sin are small, your need for God is small. These were individuals who saw themselves as just okay on their own. They really didn't need God for saving grace. And so the rejection theme builds in the book of Luke. The rejection of Jesus at Nazareth in chapter 4 begins to widen, and it is repeated again and again. They did not want the will of God so they wouldn't re submit to John's baptism. Now, that sets up this parable on the part of Jesus, verse 31. There's, take, put in mind these two responses. Some respond, some reject. Verse 31, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? Now here, I'm going to steer you a little bit, but I think he's thinking negatively. He's thinking of the rejection, those who reject him. What are they like? 
They, verse 32, are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. Let's stop just for a moment there. We've got to kind of get back into this culture. Jesus likens those who did not respond to John's message and therefore to Jesus like children playing in the marketplace. The picture here is they're sitting in the marketplace, running around in the streets, and they take out a flute, and, and this group of children starts playing the flute, and they want to play wedding. In a Jewish wedding, what a great time, and what a great thing to uh, imitate as children. So they want everybody to dance around and jump around and, and be all excited and play wedding. Well, we played the flute, and you didn't dance around. We played the dirge. Okay, you don't like that? Let's, let's play funeral. Strikes us as rather morbid, doesn't it? Children playing funeral. In our culture, I get lost here, but hang on for a minute. In our culture, we play house, right? Not, not funeral. We, of course, are an enlightened culture, sophisticated enough to know nobody ever dies, right? Children pretending to play funeral, there'd be something very wrong with them. Well... Jewish culture was much more real about the world. We don't even talk about death at funerals. But kids played funeral all the time. So here they play this dirge and want to pretend and mourn because it is a way of life, after all. But nobody's responding. Now, that's the picture. We're playing the flute to want to jump up and down. We're playing the dirge to want to play a funeral. But here's the problem, verse 33, or how Jesus takes it. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I think this is how we have to look at it. Those that are playing these things, the children, are those who are rejecting John and Jesus, as is pointed out in 33 and 34. So the, in the application of the parable, first of all, to John, it is a culture saying to John, we're playing the wedding flute and you won't cooperate. I mean, lighten up, John. A camel skin? Bug guts topped off with honey at the end? I mean, lighten up. No, you want to talk about judgment, and you want to talk about repentance, and you want to talk about all these austere things, this ascetic in the desert. Come on. A little joy here, John. And here's Jesus on the whole other end of the spectrum. And he eats with sinners. Remember why he didn't fast. We, he said, would, but he did not because the king was there. It was time to celebrate. And so there's Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees look down their long nose and say, come on, Jesus, a little austerity here. They played the dirge, but Jesus wouldn't dance to it. He wouldn't mourn. We played the dirge for you, and you would not mourn, so we reject you too, Jesus. Neither John nor Jesus could win with these people. Jesus was too celebratory, and John was too full of mourning and repentance. And you know what the real problem was? It wasn't with Jesus and it wasn't with John. The real problem was they rejected the will of God. 
because they didn't want God and His ways and did not want to humble themselves to repent of their sin. They rejected Jesus and they rejected John. And the same thing goes on today all the time. But there was a positive response in all of this as Jesus ends off his teaching here as he says in verse 35, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. That's a proverbial statement which simply means God's people could see the wisdom in Jesus' approach and they could see the wisdom in John's approach and they could see the truth and they grabbed it. These are the children that he's referring to here using, I think, the analogy from the people playing out in the, mar- the children playing out in the marketplace. Wisdom is proved right by her children. God's way is proved right by those who discern in humility, submit to God's ways. Let me talk just for a few moments here, draw a few observations as we close. First, John and Jesus had very different approaches to evangelism. Their styles differed, but the substance of their message was the same. Jesus attended dinner parties of the rich and famous and even sometimes the infamous. He ate and drank and spent time with sinners. John the Baptist, by way of contrast, was an ascetic. He ate locusts and wild honey. He dressed in camel hair robes and lived in the desert. And he preached a hard-hitting message of repentance. You know, each man had his own unique method and each followed God's will, proclaiming the gospel faithfully. Each loved God with all of his heart. Neither one was corrupted by the audience, by the criticism. They did what was right, but they did it in two very different ways. Now, there are evangelistic methods in our day that are inferior. In fact, some are diabolical. They're wicked. Trying to get people to see Jesus in wrong ways. But we need to remember that there is not one means or one style of evangelism. There are some unique means, and some are very outward in their approach. There are some who stand on a street corner and lift up their voice and preach to people walking by. There are some who go from door to door, very outward, aggressive approaches to sharing the gospel. I think it's wrong for Christians to say that's the only way to share the gospel with others. I think it's also wrong for others to criticize and say that's an illegitimate means. Certainly it can be. But let's not criticize those who are sharing the gospel. There are other means. There are means of Bible studies. There are program approaches. There's marketplace evangelism just in the give and take of daily life. The use of literature or references to the Lord at the workplace. There's friendship evangelism in which we come to a place where through time and patience we build a bridge to an individual. There's a lot of different means. There are illegitimate and inappropriate applications of each one of these. And I I don't have the time to go into that now. Please understand that. But the issue is not so much a matter of means as it is a matter of faithfulness to the gospel. And the issue is... We need to share the gospel. That's the point. How is a secondary matter. We need to be cautious. But doing it is the issue. Secondly, the issue before God is not whether or not one dances to your tune. 
but whether or not you dance to God's. There are only two responses to Jesus in this text, and you can read all of the Gospels and see that there are only two responses to Jesus ever. You know, some people build up their expectations and insist that Jesus meet them on those expectations. They come with a ready-made agenda and demand that Jesus jump through their hoops. It's very important as we come to this text of Scripture to stop for a moment and ask the question, have you come to Jesus on His terms? Not on the terms of your family, not on the terms of some Christian tradition. Have you come to Jesus on His terms? Have you received the good news of Christ crucified and risen according to the Scriptures? There's only one objective standard that is, exists for us here. There's the empirical evidences, but they need to be tied to the objective truth of God's Word. Have you come to God on His terms? It is crucial that we are always reading the Scriptures to know whether or not we are in fact in the faith and have come to Him on His terms. A third observation for those who have been saved. Are you grappling with doubts today? Remember even John the Baptist suffered doubt. It's an amazing thought. People who believe in Jesus can count on satanic opposition and one of the favorite tools of Satan is to oppress us with doubts. The key is not to never doubt. To keep your mind occupied so that you never really stop and listen and think and analyze. That's not the key. The key is to be honest with our doubts. But here is, I think, the ultimate key. It is then to be submissive to listen to what God says. If we throw up our hands in despair, we become bitter, we draw on our own, out our own conclusions while stopping our ears, we're in big trouble. Our faith is in jeopardy. How do you deal with doubt? How do you counsel a friend who comes to you with doubts? Well, I think, number one, don't pretend them away. We learn from the psalmist that we should legitimately lift our voice in despair and express our concerns to God and perhaps to a wise counselor. Don't deny the doubt. But secondly, don't just play with it. Don't just toy with it. Resist it. Doubt is an attack on faith, and it is by faith that we live, and it is only with faith that we will see God. We must resist the doubts as what, for what they really are, a moral assault. Having expressed our doubts to God and praying for His grace, we must put our hand on our mouth ultimately and listen humbly to what God says. As we struggle through doubts by God's grace, we will hear that still small voice and it will draw us away from self and into a deeper faith. That's where I came out of my dungeon of doubt in the mid-80s. Realizing in retrospect so clearly now that I went into those classes with what I thought was a very firm faith, but it was a faith that to a degree rested in me. And I thought that I could go into all those classes and through rational means destroy every teacher that raised any doubt against the Christian faith. Humbly, of course. But I thought I could do that. 
I realized I had some things to learn about sin and about doubt. But what God did to me was put a hand over my mouth and open my ears and to teach me to listen to Him. And what it did is it drew me closer to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, when we deal with doubts, the ultimate witness is not facts. It's not logic. It's not rhetoric. The ultimate conclusion is the person of Jesus Christ. We have to draw back to Him. What did Jesus tell John to do? He told him to get his eyes off of himself and his doubts and to look to what Jesus had done. And that's where our doubts will always find their remedy. They will find their remedy at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. When those doubts besiege us, we must come back to the foot of the cross and see there dying the Son of Man, the Son of God, who rose from the dead. Be encouraged. The faith that survives Doubting Castle is a stronger faith. The turmoil I experienced in the fall of 84 at a secular university was as beneficial to the formation of my faith in Christ as were four years in a Bible college. I wouldn't want to part with either one of them in God's providence and mercy for me. But it wasn't one over the other, it was both and. There were the seasons in the light and the glow of Christian faith formation. And there was that season in the darkness of doubt and despair. And both in God's grace brought me to the cross of Jesus Christ. If he didn't rise from the dead, we have no business being here. We have no faith. This is an absolute worthless sham. But I came back to the God-given, Holy Spirit-granted conviction that Jesus Christ beat death. He was then who he said he was. The way, the truth, and the life If you find yourself in a faith community then where the lights are on, the glow is warm, and you're growing and you're learning and you're feeding on God's Word, run with that program. Run with it as long as you can run with it because there may well be a day somewhere down the road where darkness sets in. But remember that those days too are good. Sometimes God's truth shouts to us in the light. There's other times when we can only hear it in the whisper of the darkness of Doubting Castle. Know that what you're experiencing is not unusual. And know that if you are God's child, He will use the ordeal to build your faith stronger. But you have to love Him with all your heart. You have to listen to Him when He whispers faintly to you in the dark valley. I have no doubt that John listened to that whisper as his two messengers returned to Machaerus' dungeon and delivered the message. This is what he said. The blind see. The deaf hear. 
He has spoken to the dead, and they've come to life. And that's all he said. And I think that John, in the darkness of the dungeon of despair, as he faced death, just had to hold to the hand of Christ and trust that Jesus was who he said that he was. John didn't have the benefit of the resurrection. He couldn't stand at the foot of the cross and see Jesus for who he was in that sense. He had to trust the Old Testament truth, and he had to hold to what he knew about Jesus. Do you entertain doubts? Do you counsel someone who has doubts? We don't have to worry. What we need to do is come back to Jesus Christ. And I have no doubt that God will do for us what he did, I believe, for John. For those of us who hold onto his hand as we die. Someone said to me in recent days, I'm no longer a Christian. And as I began to counsel and try to help and steer, one question that I asked was, whose hand do you want to hold when you die? Whose hand do you want to hold when you leave this life? You want to hold on to Buddha? You want to hold on to Muhammad? You want to hold on to your own way? Or do you want to hold on to the hand of the one who took on death and slew it? Look to Jesus and live. Let's bow for prayer. God, I thank you for the humbling experience of facing doubts. I thank you for those warm moments in the glow of deep faith where we have no doubt at all and can almost smell heaven. But God, there's other times when it seems so very unreal. We admit this. We realize that faith is not a contract. We sign on the dotted line and it's given to us and we just put it in our pocket and hold on to it like that and never ever to be questioned again. It's not that way. We're walking in the dark. We don't see you. We have to trust, as this great passage of Scripture was read here earlier from Hebrews 11, we have to trust that you are there and that you reward those who seek you with yourself. And there are times when we feel you and sense you and know that you're there, and there are times when we rejoice in your presence, and there are times when our faith is cold. And doubt hovers over us like a mist. God, I pray that you will deepen our faith as we come and look again into the face of Jesus Christ, as we deal with the facts that he was the Son of God, born to the Virgin, come in flesh, bearing our sin, prophesying that he would rise from the dead, and doing so, 
Help us to look to the face of Jesus and deepen our faith in Him. God, I know that ultimately I pray for a gift, for faith itself is a gift from Your gracious throne. I pray for any among us who do not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord, who do not have the assurance of faith in Him. I pray, God, that You will show that person, that those individuals that might be among us here, that they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. That they would come into the glow and into the joy of saving faith in Christ. But God, help them not to reject your will, but to humble themselves and to come on their knees before your throne asking for mercy and grace. For those of us who know you as Savior, God, deepen our faith. And when we go through those times of doubt and trial, I ask, God, that you would whisper to us in the dark, that you would draw us to the light and slowly, patiently bring us to vibrant faith. If I pray for anyone here who is in that deep doubt, I pray, God, that you'll help them to see the face of Jesus. Attested by faithful witnesses and demonstrated in the Holy Word, May they see Jesus for who he is and draw to the light. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.